Hello, this is Edie. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew first how much we appreciate you, and that in honor of Teacher Appreciation Week, right now at Heinemann.com, you can get 15% off and free shipping on all Heinemann professional books. This offer runs until May 11th. Head on over after the episode. Some restrictions apply. See the website for details. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. Heinemann is a provider of resources written by real teachers for real classrooms. Heinemann values teachers as decision makers and students as curious learners. Discover the path to lifelong professional learning at Heinemann.com. Heinemann is dedicated to teachers. I'm Brett from Heinemann. How do you feel about grammar? For many of us, it was a frustrating exercise that kept writing inaccessible. In Between the Commas, Sentence Instruction That Builds Confident Writers and Writing Teachers, author Martin Brandt moves the idea of grammar away from the traditional heavy terminology and helps us better understand the key moves for writing instruction. We started off our conversation on where Marty found himself in 1997 that changed his teaching practice. Well, as I put it, at the end of that section is that it's really the beginning of a new part of my career. It's the beginning of the rest of my career. And I was teaching this class called Language Arts 3. And it was a very, very challenging class full of um, students who were indifferent to hostile. So it was a struggle of a class. And I always was just barely keeping my head above water. And so one day I decided just out of the blue to try sentence modeling. And I didn't know that there was any kind of uh, curriculum around this, but I just it was just a desperate shot in the dark. And so uh, I put together sentences from a story by John Krakauer, the magazine story of Into Thin Air, that would become the book Into Thin Air. And I remember reading those sentences just being knocked out by them, and, and it was just such an easy read. And so I began to ask myself, well, why don't my students write sentences like that? And so that became something of an obsession for me, really just the main professional problem of my career. How can I get my students to understand what are possibilities of the sentence as opposed to all of the limitations and prohibitions that we English teachers usually attach to it? You open the book asking yourself three questions, and the third really kind of jumped out to me. And you write that, you know, you say that that was the most gutsy question question was, well, why can't you teach them to write like that? Yeah. You know, uh, the, the first one was, let's see, it was uh, what's happening in those sentences. And then the second was, why don't my students write like that? And then finally it was, well, why can't you teach them to write like that? What was it about that question that was so gutsy? And, and what path did that set you on? Well, it was an admission that I was far short of where I needed to be as a teacher. I mean, it was, you know, why can't you teach them? It was, it, I would, the, there's a, a premise there that I hadn't done it yet. And that if I wanted to do it, I'd have to start working at it and find ways that would work. And it's not easy to do things, things like this because, you know, a lot of people seem to understand, and this was, this was true of myself when I first started teaching, that it's simply, you know, here is how to do a, a verbal phrase. Here is how you write an absolute phrase. And there's a sort of this assumption that if you've taught them or told them something, then that constitutes teaching and learning. But, you know, no real teaching takes place until the students have actually learned something. 
so yeah, it really was just by asking myself that question. It was just an admission that um, I wasn't there yet. And that if I wanted to get there, I'd have to start working at it. And you really did. You then took a lot of time to sort of unpack a lot of what you call sort of the busy work of grammar that wasn't quite as necessary for instruction. How did that journey lead you to what you call the three pillars of sentence instruction? Well, I guess there was certainly a lot of trial and error. But once I found something that worked, that seemed to work in the class, I would just continue to make use of it. So I discovered, for example, that scaffolding sentences a certain way, breaking them up into grammatical chunks, for example, that was an early discovery that if I broke sentences up into grammatical chunks uh, with actual, you don't see this in the book so much, but actual lines crisscrossing and dividing the different uh, portions of a sentence and then having the students write their own version underneath that. But it wasn't coherent. It wasn't part of any coherent pedagogy. It was instead just something that I did every once in a while to to teach them sort of one-off lessons on this kind of structure or one-off lessons on that. And it didn't actually cohere into anything really clear until I got to San Francisco State, where I began to study the grammar and rhetoric of the sentence. And it was through those classes that I really began to make connections between what I was trying to do and... On one hand, what I was trying to do, and on the other hand, how it fit into some kind of coherent whole for my students. And so eventually it began, some things just became clear to me. Things like, um, well, what's the the first pillar, of course, is uh, sentence focus. And so a lot of the things that I had been trying to do when I wrote exasperated little comments in the margins of my students' paper, you know, turned out to be direct result of problematic sentence focus. A lot of what we do in teaching writing, when we teach essay writing in particular, is really aimed at either stimulating or preventing problems in coherence. But the problem is that too many of these methods are so prescriptive that they really kind of kill whatever real thinking is going into the work. And so it was really just a few years ago that I thought that these three things could make the whole foundation for a writing I wouldn't want to call it a program, but for an approach to teaching writing. You had a, you had a quote in the, in the third chapter that really jumped out at me, that sentences must work together to create meaning. And it just seems like such an obvious thought, but yet it seems to be lost in a lot of writing that is happening today. How, how is that getting lost? Well, I'm not sure how it's getting lost. Um, yeah, it's kind of a dangerous thing to write because I thought a lot of people would hear that and say, well, that it was, uh, you know, uh, that I was a master of the obvious, teller of tales twice told. But I think that, like I said, a, a lot of the instruction that we give, the prescriptive instruction, you know, having sentences outlined, or excuse me, having your essays outlined or, or sort of um, pre-planned. I mean, of course, everybody does some pre-planning when they're writing. You have either an idea in your head or you write down, jot down a few notes. But that doesn't mean that you have to plan out your paragraphs uh, point by point by point, which is what an awful lot of us do. And, you know, I wanted to make it clear that these things that I criticize are things that I've done myself and eventually found lacking for one reason or another. And so when I got to that issue about coherence and about sentences working together, I thought to myself, well, really, there's a bunch of questions that I've written over and over and over in the margins of students' writing. 
And maybe it's a question of helping the students to internalize some of these questions. And really, when it comes right down to it, all three of these pillars are all directly related to the needs of the reader. And so when our students write, they don't really have any reader in mind. Most of them simply are writing to finish the assignment and, you know, relieve themselves of the anxiety that they're experiencing the writing process. What I want to do is remind them as much as possible about their own linguistic prowess, that they have the ability to extend their ideas as they do in conversation all the time, and to do so quite coherently without the help of any kind of uh, outline model or uh, scaffolding or anything like that. And as I, I think I, I did say in the book that, you know, we don't need to know what we're going to say in order to write. I mean, we don't even do that when we speak. We speak and it comes out. It's part of the, the magic of human language. What we need to do instead of knowing what we speak is, is know that we can proceed with confidence, that we can find out what we have to say in the process of writing. And you're very honest in your whole approach to how you take this to your students, where you get them to sort of come on board with you in one instance, and then in the next instance, you might lose them all over again. You have these key phrases throughout the whole book that sort of make some of the grammar rules a lot more accessible, and you help us understand them a lot more. I just want to go over a couple of my favorite ones and have you just sort of explain in sort of a high-level view of what a couple of these are. So tell me about the day you dropped a dime. <laughs> well, I just broke up a fight at lunch. And, you know, high school is so boring that the, the students were irate with me for having broken up a fight. Finally, something to pierce the boredom, the tedium of it all. And so they say, oh, yo, Mr. Brandt, why you drop a dime for, man? And I thought, drop a dime, man. Where'd they pick that one up? Because, you know, they're in this post-payphone era, yeah. <laughs> you know. And um, so I thought dropping a dime, you know, to, to sort of uh, to narc on somebody, to, to add unsolicited information. You know, who asked you? Who asked you to say that? Yeah, well, you know, I decided that it was kind of significant, you know. So, so I thought that that would be a nice way to sort of uh, describe what is known in grammarian circles as an adjective clause, which makes use of terms like who, whose, and whom, where, and when, which, or that. You know, so what I say to my students is that you can drop a dime on any noun. You know, I, I gave the car to my dad. He enjoys a good bargain. Well, you know, if we switch that into a, or, you know, transform that into a single sentence, which is the kind of confidence we want to start building in them to be able to extend their sentences further. We say, well, I gave the car to my dad. Who loves a good bargain? And so um, it's, it's just uh, things like that. And so now what I find myself saying to my students all the time is, you know, I'll read, I'll read something they write and, and I'll see uh, a couple of things. You know, one is the sort of the unexplored potential for this. So I'll highlight a single noun and I'll say, why don't you drop a dime on that noun and see what happens. And so they know what that means. Um, the other instance where I use it is when they write a, a, a run on or a comma splice and I'll say, hey, look, you know, that's almost a dime dropper. If you change that he to a who, you just... Uh, executed a very sophisticated move, you know. Well, another one that I really like a lot is the smack talker. And you say that the smack talker can draw out unique writing voices. How does the smack talker do that? Well, it's one of those things where, you know, we often say to our students things like, you don't want it to add more detail. And if grammatically they're too uncertain about a way to do that, then the expression or the, the requirement or the request to add more detail might just be confusing to them. 
you know, I think I, in the way the way I put it in the book is, you know, you might as well be asking a, a four-year-old to do a quadratic equation. And, I, and by saying that, I'm not trying to compare them to four-year-olds or to, to minimize their intellect. Actually, their intellect is vastly underrated, I think. But um, if you can say to, for, some, for something like, uh, you know, I, I, I passed the ball to, to Draymond. He is the best player on the court. Instead of he is, which is the shorter sentence following it, you could say, I passed the ball to Draymond, comma, the best player on the court. And so that's your smack talker. And the, the actual grammatical term for that is a noun phrase, a positive. And once again, that's the kind of thing that means nothing to most people. But if I tell my students, you know, talk a little smack on this noun here, then they understand that to mean either. I mean, that it, it doesn't have to be smack talk. I mean, obviously, my, the example that I just had was not smack talk. I was calling somebody the best at something. But if you, if you really wanted to go down that road, you know, um, did I have any good examples in there? In <laughs> Trying to think of one. I know. I uh, there's like you've got you do have quite a few actually. I don't have it open to that page. So but you could be you, you could say something like uh, a person as corrupt as he is incompetent. You add that to the name, and you get yourself a really nice smack talker phrase. That's a literal smack talker, but of course they can be they can be neutral too. You know, so he enjoys the work of William Shakespeare, uh, the the great English playwright or you know, the famous English playwright. You know. Um, but if you if you wanted to really talk smack, you know, you, you overrated English playwright. You wanted to make the praise a little bit more explicit, you know, that you had the greatest writer in the history of English. But really, the the potential for ex, for sentence expansion happens when the students can add a dime dropper to the smack talker. So that's what I call the smack talker dime, dime dropper combo, and it's capable of leveraging enormous amounts of leverage. Excuse me, amounts of information into a sentence without running it on, without taking it past its breaking point. And the example that I give in the book is that obituary writers do it all the time. They cram an entire lifetime of achievements in between the subject and the verb, the subject being the person's name and the verb being died. You know, In between so-and-so died, you've got all of their human achievements on earth. You, know? you also take on, um, I, was, I, I was excited to read this part about passive voice and active voice. Because I feel like, and we sort of, I feel like a lot of people default to the passive voice when writing. So, what's what is your take on the passive voice versus the active voice? The passive voice is not as bad as we've been led to believe. The truth is that with our students, they go into the passive not to obfuscate or evade anything. They are often simply trying to sound academic, and so you end up with these very strange constructions sometimes. Here's an example from uh, a really strong student. In H.G. Bissinger's book, Friday Night Lights, a story not of a high school football team's trials and tribulations is told, but rather a gritty telling of what really goes on in a small town. So um, that sentence is a bit of a mess because he chose the passive. But the passive really directly related to the issue of sentence focus, which is the, the object of the first chapter. Um, and so uh, if a student chooses a particular subject, oftentimes there's no way to avoid the passive because you can't necessarily make that subject act in a way that's going to make sense with the idea semantically that you're trying to communicate. So, so however, there are times when the passive is perfectly acceptable and we use the passive all the time. And so I wanted to make a defense of that. This comes directly from the instruction of the San Francisco State Professor William Robinson. 
who uh, died a few years ago. I never got a chance to meet him, but the first class that I took at San Francisco State was a direct result of his work. And he argues that there are three times when the passive is perfectly acceptable. And so I, I share some of those uh, or share those three things in the, in the book. You know, simple instances where we use passive constructions. Like if you say, you know, it's supposed to rain, that's a passive construction because you're not saying who is doing the supposing. But nobody on earth expects you to, to tell you that. And if you said, you know, the weatherman supposes it will rain, your friends would kick your ass and you would deserve it. Well, this, this has been great talking to you, Marty. There's so much good stuff in this book. How in our own writing can we develop these skills more naturally so it can kind of become more of a part of the process and not necessarily revision as we go? Or is it always sort of an element of going back and constantly sort of learning these things through revision? What's, how do we get this to be more natural for most of us? Yeah, I think it is in revision for most of us. You generally don't write using smack talkers. We write in sentences, and then we can adjust afterwards. So um, a lot of these things don't come naturally to us in speech. In writing, if we were to use these in speech, a lot of them would sound like affectations. But it's part of what is expected in making writing interesting and enjoyable. So if you go back to that John Krakauer example, if you were talking to him in a cafe, he would never say it that way. Um, he would never, you know, hey, so how was Mount Everest, John? You know, oh, straddling the top of the world, one foot in Tibet. One, it's like listening to Jay Peterman's character on Seinfeld. So we don't actually, we generally don't talk like that, you know, with a few exceptions, probably. Um, so it, it is, in a way, literally uh, a writer, a, li a writerly move. It's almost an affectation. And the students are suspicious of it because it seems dishonest to them. It's not what they would say. It's not the way they would say it. The real problem with most student writing is it doesn't reflect very well what interesting and exciting and thoughtful and complex people that they actually are. So you could argue that, well, how are you going to get that through any kind of school essay, you know, anyway? And I think there is a place for that argument. But my job is to help them write school essays and try to make them more interesting and enjoyable and more reflective of the complex individuals that they are. That's just what I'm doing. So, so what I want to do is encourage them to take on these things that they wouldn't ordinarily even notice in their own writing as something, as any kind of possible way or path uh, to proceed on. Like if, if I see one smack talker or one ing bomb in an essay where there wouldn't have been one before, that constitutes growth. And it's incremental. And, you know, it's not going to be some kind of explosion of words like when they were two or three years old and they moved from babbling to actual human speech. But it is growth. And teaching writing for growth as opposed to simply finishing the year at the same general place where you started, which is kind of where... I spent a lot of my career myself finishing the same place where I was when I started. Um, and also um, for the students, um, just, uh, you know, not having grown at all as a writer in the course of the year. You know, I, I, I just can't take that idea. I can't I can't live with it in, in, in my conscience anymore. So so I'm just trying to find ways to help them grow bit by bit. 
My thanks to Martin Brandt for his time today on the podcast. His book, Between the Commas, Sentence Instruction That Builds Confident Writers and Writing Teachers, is available now on Heinemann.com. And you can check out a sample chapter from Between the Commas on blog.heinemann.com. You can learn more about Marty and more about the book. Thanks for listening.